Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. So, Jessica, last week we brought our listeners the story of five unsolved cases in Bardstown, Kentucky, and also talked about our new podcast, Bardstown. I want to thank uh, all of our listeners for checking that one out and giving it a listen. Yeah, well, so Bardstown is just one of those stories that touches so many people because it really seems like being in a small town, this could happen anywhere, but it's not happening anywhere. It's happening in Bardstown, Kentucky, and I think— Shay and I hope that this podcast will lead to some answers for those families and for that community. And that's Shay McAllister, your co-host you mentioned for the Bardstown podcast. Of course, our listeners can find that wherever they listen to podcasts. And speaking of small towns, this week we are heading to California, another relatively small town, Escondido, California. And this is a story that involves false confessions. It's always a tough subject and, and a tough idea to wrap your mind around the the idea that you could be in a situation where you're being questioned, interrogated, and you admit to doing something that you just didn't do. It's so unimaginable, but, you know, we, we see these kind of stories so frequently that, you know, you can't really judge until you're in that position, whether you're the law enforcement officer or you're the person in the hot seat. All right, well, let's take our listeners back to 1998, Escondido, California, when this case begins. For 14 years, Michael Crow lived with the horrible crime attached to his name, a crime that stunned Escondido, California, a brutal, unthinkable murder that he and two friends confessed to as teenagers. But time and truth would set Michael and his friends free. Escondido, California sits just northeast of San Diego. Compared to the hustle and bustle of San Diego, it's a relatively quiet area. When you think of high-crime areas, Escondido does not come to mind. Back in 1998, 12-year-old Stephanie Crow lived in a home with her parents, her brother Michael, and her younger sister Shannon. Stephanie was a 7th grader at Hidden Valley Middle School in Escondido. She was outgoing and involved in the community, recently honored for being an outstanding junior volunteer at the Escondido Library. Stephanie was the model 12-year-old. She was a good student. She was friendly. She was well-liked. Steve Price is a weekend anchor and reporter at KFMB-TV in San Diego. Back in 1998, he was a general assignment reporter. On the morning of January 21st, reports started coming in that a young girl had been murdered inside her home. It was Stephanie Crow. It was her grandmother who found her on the floor in the morning um, and called for, for police, and then police showed up, and I remember seeing pictures later from the crime scene and it was a bizarre scene because everything happened in the bedroom she was stabbed in her bed nine times but there wasn't a lot of blood everywhere like you would expect in this type of crime which the whole crime scene was bizarre in that they never found fingerprints they didn't find dna 
how could somebody get into this home and kill this 12-year-old? It made everybody think this had to be an inside job. At this time, we have not been able to discover uh, signs that would indicate that there was forced entry. We haven't ruled out that uh, the possibility is that it could be a family member or an acquaintance or a stranger. If it takes weeks, then we'll have evidence teams out there uh, on hands and knees for weeks if it takes that long. As news got out about the murder, we heard from friends and residents in Stephanie's neighborhood couldn't believe what had happened to the sweet, outgoing 12-year-old girl they knew. Everybody that uh, came in contact with her loved her. She was just a very, very special young lady. A terrible tragedy for uh, Escondido as well as the school. I can't think of any, any reason anyone would have had to have, to have done anything to her. As Steve Price covered the case, a tape back at the station came to light. A brief interview with Stephanie a few years before her life was brutally ended. She was helping to clean up a local park. This is Stephanie's voice. It gets you to not do stuff like watch TV all the time. I mean, it gets you out there and see what... So this beats watching cartoons? Oh, yeah. The only lead police had at the time were reports of a man seen in the neighborhood the night before, a man described as a transient by people in the community. All they had known about Richard Tewitt is that there was some guy who had been knocking on doors uh, in the neighborhood that night. He was apparently looking for a girl by the name of Tracy, and he was knocking on doors. People were kind of suspicious. He had been looking in windows, um, and several of the neighbors actually had called the police that night saying, there's some strange guy in our neighborhood. He's been interviewed. Uh, he's not in custody at this point. There's... Nothing to indicate that he went to the Crow residence that night. Any weapon found at this point? No. At this point, we're still looking for uh, the weapon that was involved in the crime. Without any physical evidence and without any signs of forced entry, police focus attention on Stephanie's older brother, Michael. Right from the beginning, it seemed like police were focusing in on Stephanie's older brother, Michael. At the time, he was just 14 years old, um, kind of considered a, a loner type kid, uh, had a couple of buddies, they were really into video games, that kind of stuff. Um, they brought him in for questioning. Over the course of many hours, police grill Michael and his two friends. Mark, can you tell me what, what you did with the knife? What? God, I don't, I, no, I don't know. I didn't do it. Mike. Mike, let's hear it. Let's hear it, Mike. Is she heavy? Can you feel the weight of her body in your arms? I don't know. You keep asking me. I just don't know. It's either Shannon, or it's your grandma, or it's your mom, or it's your dad. And if you're a parent and you watch those tapes, it, your heart just breaks for these boys because they're 14 and 15 years old. Think about when you were 14 and 15 years old, and then to have these police who are adults and know what they're doing just pounding at your psyche, telling you, oh, your parents think you did this. They don't love you anymore. It, they just kept hitting on these kids to the point where the kids just broke. And they never, these kids never had a chance. They didn't have an attorney with them. They didn't know the implications of what they were saying, what it would all mean. On a Friday night, just two days after the murder of his sister, Michael confesses. I think you're afraid if you tell me what the truth is. Facing the demon. No. All I know is, I'm positive I killed her. I mean, she was like a threat to me. 
Everything I did, she could match. That wasn't right. They had him on tape and the parts they showed us, you know, he seemed to be confessing to the crime, but we would later come to learn about what went into that interrogation. And, and as a parent myself, hearing what happened to him is alarming and would be to any parent. I mean, for, for one, his parents didn't even know that he was being interrogated by the police. They had no idea. He was never offered an attorney. So he's just speaking as a 14 year old, not really fully knowing the consequences um, of what he's saying. Um, and police flat out were lying to him. They were telling him that they had evidence that implicated him. They they told him that he had failed a lie detector test. They told him that even his parents thought he did it. And they just pounded on him hour after hour after hour for a good six hours. They were just going after him. And finally, he gave them what he wanted. He, they gave him a confession. He, he said that he killed her because he felt that she was a threat, that she was the good child, that um, she made him feel worthless. And But even then, he, he gave very vague statements as to how the murder happened. There were never any details. In fact, I believe he even said in those tapes that he couldn't remember killing it, but that he was sure he did. Despite the confession, Michael's bewildered parents refused to believe what they're hearing from police. And they never thought he did it. So it's not like they were in a mindset of, gosh, our son killed our daughter. We need to be worrying about our daughter and bury her, and then we'll deal with our son. This was a case of right away they said, our son didn't do this. He's innocent. And so now they're trying to grieve the loss of their daughter and at the same time protect their son from going to jail for murder. The police had their confession, and Michael wasn't the only one facing charges. There were a total of, of three boys who were originally charged. It was Michael Crow, who was Stephanie's older brother, and then his two friends, Aaron Hauser and Joshua Treadway. And the belief by police is that Hauser may have been the mastermind. He had all these knives, um, uh, and one seemed to be missing, uh, and that Michael was upset with his sister, and so he went along with it, and, and Joshua Treadway you know, was involved somehow as well. At the time, it seemed sort of like a slam dunk case. I mean, the the police were talking to the brother. They had interrogated him. He supposedly had confessed. And so at that point, we thought this was a done deal and we'd be covering a, a trial and, and an unfortunate funeral and, and th we'd be moving on to our next story. Didn't really work out that way. He spent around six months behind bars. But new evidence came in, and suddenly the case was turned on its head. That new evidence had to do with a man named Richard Tewitt, described as a transient, someone who they had, in fact, questioned the morning after the murder. Tewitt's name went by the wayside after Michael's confession. But things changed when one of Michael's friends went to trial. It was right before one of, the, one of Michael Crow's friends, Joshua Treadway, was supposed to go to trial. And right before his trial was about to start, his attorney had asked that a different shirt of Richard Tewitt's be tested for DNA evidence. And it was on that shirt that they found three little drops of blood. I mean, it was hardly even noticeable on the shirt, but that changed everything. All of a sudden, the charges against the boys were dismissed and... Richard Tewitt was suddenly now the focus of a murder investigation. But outside of those drops of blood, there wasn't any evidence linking Tewitt to the crime scene. They never found a weapon 
ever. Even to this day, they still have not found it. And inside the room, they never found any fingerprints and they never found any DNA tying Richard to it, to the crime, which is a whole other interesting aspect of this case, to be honest, because here you have this transient who is kind of a bumbling guy. He's been convicted of a bunch of minor offenses for, for drugs and, and, and other stuff. And how could this guy get into a locked house, kill Stephanie Crow, stab her nine times, get out of the house, Nobody knows he was there. He's not covered in blood. He doesn't have the weapon. How does something like that even happen for a guy like that? Nevertheless, Tewitt went to trial for the murder of Stephanie Crow. A jury actually convicted him, not a, a first-degree murder. They acquitted him of that, but they convicted him of voluntary manslaughter. Um, they did find that he used a, a deadly weapon, a knife, even though no knife was ever found on him. And he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. And what's interesting is during jury selection of his trial, he actually escaped from the courthouse. They were on a lunch break and he somehow slipped out of his handcuffs, walked right out of the courthouse, got on a bus, and eventually several hours later was rearrested and brought back into custody and ended up getting an extra four years for that flight attempt. But it made you wonder, well, if he can slip out of a courthouse with all these armed guards around, then maybe he could get into a home and slip out undetected. So many unanswered questions when it comes to this case. But finding justice for Stephanie's killer wasn't going to be that simple. it was behind bars. And then another twist. An appeals court looked at his case and threw out the conviction, but they did decide to retry him again. And in that case, the jury found him not guilty. They ruled that there was no evidence that tied him to the Crow house at all. And they felt that the blood on his shirt was through sloppy police work, some type of contamination. And that's why these drops got there on the first place. For Stephanie's parents, the news of Tuit's release was devastating. Stephanie's murder, and now another suspect convicted and then released. When Richard Tewitt was found not guilty, they really were upset, especially uh, Stephanie's mom, Cheryl, saying, this is going to happen to somebody else. That was her big concern. Stephanie's killer was still on the loose, and the stigma of being put in prison for the murder of his sister followed Michael Crow wherever he went in the years to follow, no matter how hard he tried to move on. There are times where these kids would be out in the public, maybe at, you know, Costco, and somebody would come up and say, well, did you kill your sister? And I can't imagine what it would be like to have somebody think that of you who is a stranger. Michael's sister, Shannon. It's too much. I mean, he's moved away. He started a family. They have a two-month-old son, and he just, I mean, he shouldn't have to be put through this anymore. The families eventually filed a civil rights lawsuit. So the family did sue 
uh, the city of Escondido and the city of Oceanside, which was also involved uh, in the investigation in a civil trial. Now the families of all three boys are accusing investigators of conspiring to illegally arrest and prosecute the boys, as well as violating the civil rights of other family members. Families claim investigators held the boys illegally, questioned them overnight about Stephanie's murder, and then coerced false confessions out of the boys. The families say the investigators then used the coerced confessions in a conspiracy to illegally arrest and prosecute prosecute the boys. Inside, defense attorneys told the judge that the investigators were acting within the scope of their jobs and they cannot be sued because they are protected by legal immunity. Those attorneys would not speak on camera after the hearing, but they claimed there was no conspiracy. Not surprisingly, the Crows disagree. They all know they're lying, but it's no surprise. They really can't come out and say, we know we've done things wrong and we'll still continue to do things wrong. They can't do that. They can't lose the faith of the people. According to published reports, in October 2011, a three-judge panel determined that what the boys went through during questioning by police was psychological torture. And they settled that case for $7.25 million. And then, almost 15 years after the murder, 28-year-old Michael and his childhood friend Joshua Treadway file a motion to have their records formally cleared of all charges related to the crime. Michael is once again put under the spotlight and forced to answer questions about that horrible day. Did you hate your sister? No. You miss your sister? Yeah. Would you ever put your family through what they've been through as a result of the loss of your sister? No. Would you ever done anything to hurt her? No. Did you ever plan anything with Josh or Aaron to hurt her? No. Did you in any way, shape, or form participate in her killing? No. And then finally, after all those years, a judge decides to clear their records. Michael and Joshua are found factually innocent of the murder. Judge Kenneth So's ruling officially ends 14 years of finger-pointing at Michael Crow and Joshua Treadway by those who believe they were somehow responsible for Stephanie Crow's murder. All records of their arrest, prosecution, uh, and the like are eliminated from official sources. Uh, they don't have to say they were ever arrested. They don't have to comment on it. But the case of Stephanie Crow is still unsolved. Richard Tewitt is a free man, and a killer is likely still on the loose. We have Michael Crow, who's been now found factually innocent by a judge, which is extremely difficult to get a judge to agree to that. And you have Richard Tewitt, who went to trial, and a jury acquitted him. So... Who killed Stephanie Crow? We still don't know for sure. So, Jessica, I can tell you that there's no amount of money or lawsuits or settlements that will make up, of course, for the loss of Stephanie Crow for this family. And, and, you know, they had to go through this experience of their son being arrested for, for the crime of killing his sister, or the alleged killing of his sister, and then eventually uh, acquitted. I can't even imagine what that would be like for the family um, this double tragedy within their family and their children. And I can't imagine that any amount of money would make up for that. And then the other part of this is, of course, the confession and the audio of that interrogation. And it's really a, a haunting piece of audio to hear the, the young boy, Michael Crow, the teenager, going through that process and then confessing to a crime that he has now been cleared of all charges. And then imagine yourself as a teenager sitting there trying to grieve and you end up confessing. 
to something that you didn't do. And of course, we will have more cases here on True Crime Chronicles of false confessions or coerced confessions, how they play out and the impact they have uh, on the people who are involved in those confessions and their families. We will be back next week with another story and another case. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases.